Good morning. I've never used one of these mics before. I feel like I have a head, a neck brace on, so I may turn a little robotically. Yeah. Uh, my name is Jeremy Height, and it's great to be with you all this morning. Ritu, my wife, and I um, are excited to be here this week and at your, your guys' other campus next week to be able to share a little bit about what is going on in our lives and how God's moving and how God is moving on the Near East side of Indianapolis at a place called Shepherd Community. For those of you who don't know, Shepherd was started just over 30 years ago, Thanksgiving 1985, at a Thanksgiving outreach. And I wasn't there. I'm not that old. Um, not saying if you live during that time that you are old. <laughs> let's, let's start over. No. Um, it was a group of people who wanted to meet a tangible need with a Thanksgiving meal. And out of that grew a church and a community center that works and we strive to meet the emotional, physical, and academic needs of our students and their families. And most importantly, to meet their spiritual need, which is introducing them to the love of Jesus Christ. And 20 years ago, my family became a part of the shepherd story when my family moved from Cincinnati to Indianapolis, and both my parents came on staff at Shepherd. So some of you may have heard in the last few weeks, I don't know how you guys promote stuff, that there was going to be a J-height speaking. That's not me. That's my father. He's uh, at home right now, um, just barely missed getting put into the hospital with pneumonia and is also recovering from some foot surgery. So he is very immobile and uh, isn't able to talk much right now, but I was able to come in his place and be able to share with you guys a little bit about Shepherd. And so a little bit about me. I, age of four, came to Shepherd, grew up as a full-time volunteer at Shepherd, whether I liked it or not, and also got the great opportunity to grow up in Shepherd's programming as a elementary, middle, and high school student went off to college in Illinois to a place called Olivet Nazarene University, where I met my wife, Ritu. Uh, we both graduated. We got married. I got a master's in urban ministry, and then we came back to Indianapolis. And ever since, I've been serving at Shepherd, and right now as our director of church relations. And just want to share with you this morning a little bit about Shepherd and what we do, but I think maybe even a little bit more importantly, why we do what we do. So there's this Jewish story that's told about a rabbi from the first century AD, shortly after the time of Jesus, a guy named Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva, the story goes, was coming home one day from the market, walking home, and he was doing what every good Jewish person would have done during that time, which was recite scripture and kind of meditate on it, reciting it over and over again. And we're told in this story that he was reciting a specific passage of scripture out of Isaiah 43. And this passage, Isaiah 43, verses 10 and 11, reads, But you are my witnesses, O Israel. You are my servant. You have been chosen to know me, believe in me, and understand that I alone am God. There is no other God. There has never been, never been, and there never will be. I, yes, I am the Lord, and there is no other Savior. So Rabbi Akiva was reciting this over and over again like a good Jewish person would do. And he was so in the uh, God zone that when he came to a fork in the road, going left would have taken him home. He accidentally went right. And he didn't realize it until dust started to settle and darkness started to come in, and he came up on a Roman fort. And as he came up on that, that Roman fort, he was kind of shaken from his zoned-out state of reciting the scripture by a voice shouting out from the looming darkness, uh, Who are you? What are you doing? And he kind of stopped and looked up and was looking around, trying to figure out where that voice came from, and saw a Roman guard standing at the top of the gate for the fort. And all he could mutter out was, uh, What? And so the guard repeated his two questions. Who are you? What are you doing here? And instead of answering those two questions, the rabbi asked a question of his own. How much do they pay you 
to ask people these two questions. And the guy kind of stopped, was taken back by that question, but replied, two drachma per week. And a drachma during that time would have been about a day's wage. And then the rabbi, with great conviction, looked back up at him and shouted, I will pay you twice that if you come home with me, stand outside my house, and ask me those two questions every morning. Who are you? What are you doing here? How we answer those two questions in our own lives will dramatically impact what our lives look like here on earth. But before we can even get into who we are, we have to have an understanding of whose we are. And about two years ago, Ritu and I had the opportunity to lead a mission trip with our alma mater, Olivet, uh, with college students going to the country of India. We spent about two and a half weeks there in that country at an after-school program, working with some really great kids, and speaking and providing sermons, devotionals at prayer meetings and gatherings, being able to share a little bit about our understanding of God and getting to know some really great people in the central part of India. And I was one of the people, there was about three or four of us that would share in those different church gatherings. And we would ask, we asked them multiple times at the beginning of the trip, you know, what would be good scripture to cover? We had kind of prepared a few sermons uh, just to have in our back pocket, but we wanted to know what was good sermon material. And repeatedly their response was the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and specifically the parables of Jesus. And after hearing this a few times, we, out of curiosity, asked them, you know, why, uh, why those specifically? What was, the, what was the reason they said that without fail every single time? The parables of Jesus out of the Gospels. And their response, at least for me, was a little surprising, though maybe it shouldn't have been. If you know anything about India, you know that Christianity is not the major religion of that country. Uh, it's, it's Hinduism and then Islam. And for, for those who are not Christ followers in India, to hear a story out of the Old Testament sounds a lot like their stories. In Hinduism, their old tales, and out of Islam, their stories out of the Quran. And so not that our Old Testament stories are not great, but they don't really see that big of a difference. There's some character similarities, some kind of plot lines, uh, things that sound similar. And so what the Christians do there is they realize that that doesn't, see, like, that doesn't seem unique. For those who are not Christ followers in India, Hearing those stories don't really give them any reason to think, why would I completely change my culture, you know, my, turn my back on my family for a religion that doesn't really sound that different? Except for Jesus. Jesus is the one thing about Christianity that is dramatically unique compared to any other religion. And it's because we have a God who came as a man, fully God, fully man, who came to earth and died for us. No other religion can claim that. And for those in India, that is what makes Christianity so unique. And for me, now maybe you've been like, like this if you've grown up in the church. For me at that point, uh, I was surprised and uh, awestruck by that idea and then felt kind of guilty that Jesus being a unique thing seemed kind of uh, crazy because that's kind of the point of this Christian thing. Uh, but growing up in the church, I'd heard it so much that I forgot just how amazing a fact that is. But that's not the case in India. Uh, one of the last Sundays that we were there uh, at a church service, Ritu and I had the opportunity to be able to both share. She shared her testimony of converting to Christianity, and I get to share a sermon that morning. And as we finished up our, uh, the service, I was sitting on stage kind of in the back next to the pastor. And the pastor leaned over to me and whispered, there was about 120 people there, and, he, and told me that out of the 120, about 90 of them weren't Christians. 
They were all Hindus who had started coming in the last few weeks because they had heard about this guy named Jesus and they wanted to learn more about him. So Jesus is the central and necessary element to our faith. And how do most people learn about Jesus? Two things, the Bible and Christians. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, we're told by the writer that we, uh, Christians, are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We are Christ's ambassadors. We show God to the world. And for me, that's kind of a crazy thought. I know myself pretty well, and I don't know if I would trust myself with that responsibility. I've gotten to know Ben this morning, and I definitely wouldn't, res- I wouldn't have him given that responsibility. Just kidding. But Jesus actually believes in us, that, that we as Christians represent him to the world. And that's a great opportunity and a great responsibility because that means where we, wherever we are in the world, when we're interacting with those who don't follow Christ and they know we're Christians, they assume what we do is what Jesus would do if he were in our shoes, which is kind of a scary thing. Um, Maybe when you're on the interstate and someone cuts you off, or uh, there's some times in life where our responses aren't necessarily Christ-like, but that's the responsibility that we have to be his ambassadors to the world. So as Christians, we should act like Jesus, and the more we study Jesus in the Bible, the more we learn about him. And the more we learn about him, the more we can begin to act like him. So in our story about Rabbi Akiva, he was asked two questions by that Roman guard. Who are you and what are you doing here? For us, the who are we? Well, we're Christ's ambassadors. We are his representation to the world. And for the question, what are we doing here? I think it's it's answered in that passage, those two verses that Rabbi Akiva was reporting was repeating over and over again. Because our, our job is to unleash the love of Jesus Christ in the world. And in that, again, I just want to read it. You are my witnesses, O Israel. You are my servants. You've been chosen to know me, believe in me, and understand that I alone am God. There is no other God. There has never been, and there never will be. I, yes, I am the Lord, and there is no other Savior. We are called to be his witnesses. We are to be witnesses. That is our responsibility, our job, as ambassadors to the world for Christ. And witnessing to the world is sometimes known as evangelism. That's a a term us Christians throw around. And evangelism is true to the scripture only when it is focused on the physical and present needs of the person as much as to their spiritual condition. And, And to put it another way, evangelism is caring about the hungry stomach as much as the hungry heart. And this living out a life of evangelism as a witness is what we sometimes call compassion. And to understand how we should live out compassion, we have to understand how Jesus did. And about a year ago, I was reading through the book of Mark, and my understanding of Jesus' compassion was drastically altered by a few verses, one short story in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 42. A man with leprosy came to him, came to Jesus, and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And the short story is a beautiful example of Jesus meeting a tangible need in someone's life. We have this guy come to Jesus, beg him for a miracle. Jesus heals him. 
And then later on, in a few verses after that, we're told Jesus tells him, now go and don't tell anyone about this. And the next thing that guy does is go and tell everyone because apparently he wasn't a very good listener. But what I want to focus on in these verses is verse 41 there, those first three words. Jesus was indignant. Because when I read that, and depending on your translation of the Bible, it may read something different. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, this is in the NIV and a few other versions. Jesus was indignant is the words that are in this. And for me, that didn't make sense. So you have this guy coming to Jesus, asking for him to help. Some stuff happened in the middle, and then Jesus healed him. But it says in the middle there that Jesus was indignant, which didn't make sense to me because my uh, definition of indignant is frustrated, ticked off, and maybe a little bit angry. And there are a lot of times in Scripture, there are several times in Scripture where Jesus is frustrated, ticked off, and a little bit angry, but usually he's tossing tables. And he's not doing that in this passage, so I didn't understand why it said Jesus was indignant. It didn't seem to make sense. Why would Jesus be ticked off, uh, but yet still heal him? And it didn't really mesh with my understanding of Jesus. And so I dug into trying to understand these few words in this passage. And what I came to found out, find out is that not every translation uses those words. Some of them say that Jesus was filled with compassion, which makes a whole lot more sense. I mean, G so this guy came with me, Jesus felt compassion, Jesus healed him. That makes a whole lot more sense with my understanding of Jesus. But it didn't really answer the question of why then do some translations say that he was indignant. So I dug a little bit deeper. And what I found out was that the, the original word used there, the writer, the word that he used was a word that talked about feeling this great emotion from the central part of your being. People during that time understood our emotions uh, to come from our bowels instead of our heart. And so Jesus, in that moment, he felt an emotion from the inmost part of his being. And this word, the reason it's sometimes in, translated into indignant is this, this from the center of your being response to an injustice in the world, this righteous anger. So Jesus sees this man with this terrible disease called leprosy. He feels this righteous anger, this indignant feeling from the central part of his being, and it moved him to action. And kind of the... The crazy thing for me is this. Then I looked at it and realized this word is used 12 times in the New Testament. And every single time it's used, most of the time used referring to Jesus, either saying Jesus was indignant or Jesus was filled with compassion, that word used every single time, it wasn't just a feeling. It wasn't just Jesus saw this need, he felt compassionate, and then he went and gave a sermon. Or Jesus was, felt compassion and he went on his way. It was every single time someone felt this indignant, righteous anger, this compassion, it moved them to action. And for us, if we claim to be Christ followers, if we want to claim that we are compassionate like Jesus, it has to move us to action. If you just feel bad for someone, that's not Christ-like. In order for us to have the compassion of Christ... It means that we have to have whatever feeling we feel from either our heart or from our bowels move us to action. So what does compassion, what does the compassion of Jesus look like in our lives? Have you ever seen an injustice and felt a fire in your stomach? For me, it's this kind of fire in my stomach that kind of shoots out through my body and I just feel uh, like goosebumps underneath my skin. 
from, from my wife and I, gender-based violence and human trafficking are things that I just think about and it makes me kind of want to throw up. Like it just, I, my skin feels hot, my stomach gets turned upside down. Like that's the feeling that we're talking about. So where do you feel that in your life? Because if you've ever felt that feeling, that's the start of compassion. But you have to do something about it the way Jesus would. When you see someone hungry, someone in need of clothing, someone abused, enslaved, mistreated, or in need, and you feel this fire, this righteous anger, you have to do something about it. You have to be like Jesus and let that fire, that compassion, move you to action. Now, what does this look like? Uh, There was a lady that Ritu and I met just over a week ago at a dinner. We were sitting at a table getting to know the people there at a banquet and getting to know this husband and wife, found out that the wife is a civil engineer working downtown, actually not too far from where we live. So we were talking with her and in the midst of the conversation, it came up that, oh, in addition to being a civil engineer, uh, she started an orphanage in West Africa 15 years ago. Like no big deal. Like she just brought it up. 15 years ago, she was on a mercy ship, which is those ships that go around with doctors, help meeting medical needs around the world. And she was on there helping with some other projects that they were doing, and they happened to stop in Sierra Leone in West Africa. And while they were there in Sierra Leone, she got to know a guy named Emmanuel. Him and his wife had a dream, a a vision, and a passion to want to start a ministry and start an orphanage for kids, for orphans in their community, but they didn't have the resources So she got to know them over a few weeks, came back to the United States, brainstormed with some friends, and started an organization that raises funds here and in England um, to raise support for this orphanage, where this year, on $24,000 is their annual budget, they serve 30 orphans in their orphanage, which for me is just astounding. I... $24,000 $24,000 US dollars is running an orphanage. And this lady does it in her spare time. She, she followed God and God's leading to get on this mercy ship. Got, met a guy named Emmanuel in Sierra Leone, found out about his passion, about how he was feeling compassionate. She got caught on fire and together they responded and are helping 32 kids in Sierra Leone have a family and get to see the love of Christ. And it may be, compassion may look like a guy that I get to work with at Shepherd. His name's John Blatzheim. Around Shepherd, he's known as Pastor John. And he's 65 years old and the most fit, most energetic, busy man I have ever met. Because he got his call to ministry at the age of 57. He had already retired at that point and was volunteering in our food pantry on Saturdays at Shepherd. And as he was getting to know the people there, helping them meet a tangible need, providing food, he came to realize that those who were coming on Saturday morning to our pantry were not showing up on Sunday to church. And instead of trying to get those people to come to church, a church building, he decided to take church to them. Because most of them, come to find out, came from an apartment complex just four blocks away from Shepherd. So we started a Bible study there. And over the last seven or so years, it has continued to grow from a Bible study to a Sunday morning service. And about three and a half years ago, they'd outgrown every room in that apartment complex and were worshiping in the backyard. If, if you remember that summer, that was a summer where it never rained. Um, I know there's some farmers who thought it was uh, God turning their back on them. But for us, it was an act of God because we had church every week because there was no rain. Uh, but then we had Midwest winter hit. 
And about three and a half years ago, they came back from the apartment complex four blocks over and have service this morning. They're one of our several services at Shepherd Church. And they run about 200 people and are about half of the amount of people that will be at Shepherd this morning for church. Came out of this guy helping in a food pantry, uh, running from a call of God for a while, and then going into full-time ministry, raises his own support as a full-time missionary, and is a pastor to not only that apartment complex, but for several of them that were that original core group, they had just come out of homelessness, a few out of prison, and out of that, just about every day of the week, there's a Bible study going on at some of the prisons, the Duval Center on the Near East Side, the homeless camps, and several other apartment complexes, all out of a retired guy who is helping at a food pantry. But you don't necessarily have to go onto the other side of the world or all the way downtown to live out a life of compassion, to, to respond to whatever God is laying on your heart. I mean, you guys are a part of a great church, and I did a little bit of research. So if you go onto your computer and type in genesischurch.me and then go about five tabs over, there's a tab called Contribute. If you click on that, there are some amazing ways for you to get involved here if you're not already involved at Genesis Church and to be able to, to use your time, your talents, and your resources for the kingdom of God. And one of the amazing ways that you guys are doing that is through these spring break bags. And I was talking with someone this morning and it was asking for a little bit more context of who are these bags going to? And I figured that might be helpful to know exactly uh, maybe a few stories about some of the kids that you're going to, uh, that these bags are going to. But first, let me explain how this whole uh, snack food bags came to be. I was, it was maybe about 10 years ago, and I was in high school, and one of my friends was in middle school at Shepherd, and it was just about Christmas, and my dad was talking with this middle schooler and was talking to him about Christmas, asking him how excited he was for Christmas to come. And his response was that he wasn't because all of his meals came from school and from Shepherd. And since school was shutting down and Shepherd would be closed for the holidays, it meant he was going to be going hungry again. And he really wasn't looking forward to that. And out of that conversation with that middle schooler, Shepherd over the years has grown to this year being the first year that we can claim this. Anytime there is a significant break within the academic school year, we are providing packs like what you guys are doing with spring break to our students. And we have about 130 or so in our academy and preschool program and about 150 in our after school program. And then we also run after school program at IPS School 58. And the bags that you guys are collecting are going to help bridge the gap. The, the, the number is, sadly, it's been the number too long in our neighborhood that eight out of 10 kids in our neighborhood won't get two meals a day if they're not in school. That's a lot of numbers. Simplified, most of our kids on spring break, without any other intervention, will be averaging about one meal a day. And what you guys are providing in these spring break bags is helping bridge the gap for these kids and being able to meet a tangible need, showing them the love of Christ. And these spring break bags, they are just a part, but an important part of what we do at Shepherd. We call our programming and our services our continuum of care. And our goal is to be able to, to journey with a student from before they're born, age zero, all the way to age 25. And how we do that is we work with pregnant mothers and young mothers, working with them and their young children in the most important informative years of their life. And then we have a preschool 
for three and four-year-olds. And then we have a kindergarten through fifth grade academy that we partner with Horizon Christian School, and we're an accredited school for those kindergarten and fifth grade, or through fifth graders, about 130 of them. And then for first through 12th grade, we do an after-school program during the school year. And then during the summer, we do what we call Summer Excel. It's our day camp. And I think it's pretty unique in the fact that it's the same kids all six weeks, Monday through Friday. Their parents drop them off in the morning, pick them up in the afternoon. And it's kind of like a VBS school on steroids. We cover Bible lessons, uh, academic stuff like reading, writing, math, science. We do fine arts, painting, field trips, worship time every day, and go to the pool once a week. And for our middle and high schoolers, for their summer day camp, some of the same stuff, but they also go on trips to businesses and colleges. We do financial planning classes like budgeting, and they work some part-time jobs in order to raise some money during the summer. And uh, just about every year, we partner with one local bank where every dollar that they put in the bank that summer and keep there until they graduate college will be doubled to help them be able to pay for college or whatever their next step is. And so after high school, we, we work with those, those high school seniors, whether they're going to a two-year school, four-year school, if they're going on to military or some vocational training, that by the time they're at age 25, we've journeyed with them for a number of years in their family to be able to help them break out of the cycle of poverty. That's, that's our tagline. Uh, but what that really means is, a little bit expounded, is we all have poverty in our own lives. It may not be socioeconomic, but it may be emotional, relational, spiritual. Uh, All of us are broken and scarred in some ways. And our goal is to be able to help eradicate every obstacle and provide every opportunity for our kids, for our families, to be able to have a life with a future, a life of hope, not only for a better 10 years from now and a better tomorrow, but a, a better life and a better eternal life through Christ. So all of that is our continuum of care. And you guys with spring break bags are meeting a tangible need that is gonna be helping our elementary, middle, and high schoolers. And when you do do projects like this, you're helping students like Curtis. Curtis, about 17 years ago, showed up at Shepherd in our high school program. And for the first four weeks he was there, he was kicked out because of how bad he behaved and all the issues he caused. Uh, But after a while... Uh, he got his uh, behavior under uh, a little bit more under control and started becoming a part of our youth group. And at that point, he'd already been kicked out of IPS school for his behavior and had been told because of his learning disability, he would never graduate from high school. He got plugged in at Shepherd, got plugged in with a local Christian school downtown, graduated high school, went to college in West Virginia, graduated cum laude there, married a wonderful Christian woman that he met there, and then came back to Shepherd. And today... 17 years later, Curtis is one of our top senior leaders at Shepherd. And he's married, has three kids, owns his own home and two cars, and is investing in the neighborhood that he grew up in with the neighbors that he grew up around and investing in the ministry and the church that invested in him. There was a couple of us, uh, I was in middle school at the time, that uh, helped him go to college. So we drove with him to help him uh, unload and move for that weekend. And while we were driving, my dad asked him a question and said, you know, Curtis, you showed up with, and he named off about four teens that Curtis had showed up with that first week. And all four of them, uh, out of all four of them, Kurt, or the total five, Curtis was the only one going to college, and most of them were uh, homeless on the street at that point, 
or were far from God and in some very hard life situations. So my dad asked me, you know, Curtis, in light of your, these, these friends that you came with and that you grew up with, why are you the one going to college? And his response was, you know, I gave up believing in myself a long time ago. But Shepherd, the church, you guys never gave up on me, and I just can't let you guys down. And that is our goal with each student that we work in, that we work with, that we're not just providing resources, but that we are cheering them on. Now we, if you were to walk into Shepherd into our community center and walk past our front desk, on our right wall is a bunch of pictures. And they're pictures in the last 10 years that we've been at that particular site of all of our high school and college graduates. And Curtis is the first photo that's up there. And it's not just celebrating what Curtis and a couple dozen other students have done, though that's part of it. It's also communicating, and we remind our students that are in our programming now, that that's your goal. And we joke with Curtis, you know, we can tell the students, if Curtis can make it through high school and college, any of you can make it. <laughs> but when you invest in Shepherd, when you fill up one of these bags, you're filling up bags for students like Curtis. And you're also doing it for students like Denise, an African-American young lady who is now 23 that I had the privilege of growing up with. And she was a year behind me, and she joined Shepherd in middle school and showed up at our middle school after-school program with some friends because she realized that her hope for a better future lied in the fact that she's a really good student. And she wanted to, to succeed as much as she could at school, and she knew being able to have some extra tutoring would help. So she showed up, got involved in our programming, and through her getting involved, her older sister and her mother got involved. Started coming to church. They got involved as recipients and volunteers in our food pantry. And then as Denise got closer to college, realizing that she really wanted to make that a reality, and talked about it so much that her older sister and her mother realized it could be a reality for them too. And in the last three years, all three of them have graduated from college. And Denise graduated from our alma mater, Olivet, and two years ago went with us on our mission trip to India. And it was her first time out of the United States, um, spent most of her life in downtown Indianapolis. But after that trip, she came, worked at Shepherd for a year, and is now working in actuarial science at One America. I don't even know what that means. I just know that she's really good at it and that she's really smart. So when you're investing in bags like this, you're, invest, you're investing in students like Curtis and Denise. You're also investing in a student. Uh, he's a high schooler right now at Arsenal Tech High School. And I was talking with our youth pastor, Colby, a few days ago, and he was sharing with me this story about this one particular student who, he said, you know, if you, uh, Colby, our pastor, said, if you'd asked me a few months ago, I'd say, I don't really think he cares that much about his relationship with Christ. Like, you know, he's prayed a prayer, goes to church, but I don't really know if he really uh, has that vibrant of a faith. Uh, and that changed about a month ago when Colby was invited by the student to go to Arsenal Tech one day during lunch to speak at a Bible study that he was a part of. Come to find out, Colby went that day and realized that this student had started a student-led Bible study during lunch at Arsenal Tech, an IPS school with a faculty sponsor in a reserved room. And when he walked in, there was about 20 students in there that meet on a weekly basis and go through books of the Bible and devotionals together. So when you invest, you're investing in students like him, you're investing in students like Denise and Curtis. You're also investing in students like Brian. 
Brian was a part of Shepherd's Programs about 10 years ago when he was in preschool. And he showed up one day as a four-year-old in my dad's office with a crayon box. Now, the day before, we had taken part uh, as what's, in what's known as uh, Operation Shoebox uh, with Samaritan's Purse. If you're not familiar with that, you take shoeboxes or shoebox-like uh, containers, and you fill it up with toys, supplies, uh, hygiene things, and they send it to kids around the world. So we as a church had gathered those supplies, but we want to involve our preschool and elementary students in it as well. And so we had them pack the boxes. So the day before Brian showed up in my dad's office, he had helped pack these boxes. We sent him out that day to the distribution center, and the next day Brian showed up in my dad's office with this box and said that he had some toys he wanted to give to those kids who had nothing uh, around the world. And he opened it up, and inside that shoebox were Brian's only two toys, two beat-up matchbox cars. A little bit about Brian's story. He grew up in a broken, single-parent household uh, with a mother of questionable occupation, and as a four-year-old, was often the babysitter for his younger siblings. A kid who had several learning disabilities, who by all rights, by society, would have been called a statistic or a statistic waiting to happen of poverty and of inner city life. Uh, but Brian didn't know that. No one had told him he didn't have anything to contribute to the world. And when my dad pushed back and said, you know, no, no, you don't have to worry about it. We, we had some other toys. He said, no, there's kids who don't have anything. I have toys here at Shepherd I can play with. And insisted on giving those two cars to my dad. And I share that story for two reasons. One, you're investing with these bags and with your guys' support in some pretty awesome kids, some pretty awesome students. But also to tell you, if you've heard any of this this morning and said, oh, I don't have time or the resources or the abilities to do anything, you're wrong. Because Brian, that day, believed he had something to contribute. He really thought he had something to, to bring to the table, that he had something. And we all have something that we can do. As Christ followers, seeking to live out the compassion of Jesus, we all have something to do. So this morning's message, in one sentence, in case none of that made sense or you zoned out, you can get this, is this question. Will you live out the compassion of Jesus? What is your passion? What sets your inmost being on fire in righteous anger? How can you live out the compassion of Jesus in your own homes and schools and workplaces in this community? We as Christians are called to live like Jesus. We're called to show his love to a world that has forgotten our creator. And an important part about this is having Jesus' compassion, which isn't just an emotion. It's not just feeling bad for someone. It's having that emotion move you to Christ-like action. It's working to help others, to right the wrongs in the world. It's bringing Christ's justice, his love, and his mercy to our neighborhood and to our city. Jesus is the center of our faith, and we bring people closer to him when we represent him well in the world. Our compassion, our actions, bring Jesus to our neighbors and unbelievers closer to Jesus. So again, the question for you this morning is, will you live out the compassion of Jesus? Will you be an ambassador and witness of Christ? Or to quote one first century Roman guard, who are you and what are you doing here? <laughs>